0: We're continuing our series uh, through Luke's Gospel, and um, this morning we're looking at verses 8 to 10 of chapter 15, Um, so if you have a Pew Bible, 1039 in the ESV Pew Bible, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 8, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let's pray. Father, uh, Ray has prayed that you would give us ears to hear. Uh, as Paul said, that we would have hearts that are malleable, pliable. Father, that you would teach us from your word. Even these three verses, that they would so reflect your character and penetrate through our minds and our hearts, that we would see more clearly and understand you better uh, through even this brief section, for your word is powerful and it accomplishes all that it sets out to do. So we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, I was worried that I wouldn't have anything to say today. Uh, since typically these two parables go hand in hand—the lost sheep and the lost coin—they are they're mirrors of each other, with obviously a slight change in their imagery. And so, this probably won't be a very long sermon if you're in a rush. Uh, <clears throat> last week, we really we kicked off uh, chapter 15. Uh, these parables that, that Jesus is teaching throughout this entire chapter. And it was it was seeing that the, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, and they were saying, This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Someone's offended that the sermon is going to be short, so they've, <laughs> they've left to go to the 10:30 service. <clears throat> You see, in those in that sort of uh, Eastern culture, to eat with someone was a, was a really big deal. Now, I mean, it's still a big deal today, but 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 it, in those days, it was it meant that there was a, an honored position. There was there was a something that they greatly it, it was saying I greatly value you. Um, you mean a lot to me. I, I consider, uh, I see you quite highly. I mean, we think about the, the banquet and the wedding feast imagery that we looked at from Luke chapter four t- 14. So for, for Jesus to take people that most Jewish society would have said had little value, and were not worthy of being honored in any capacity, and then to eat with them was a a, a huge deal. It was showing everyone what he thought of the tax collectors and the sinners. And, and you will remember what we said of, of those groups last week, that the, the tax collectors were people who were lumped together with robbers and murderers the worst of society, that if you were to see a tax collector walking down the street, you would cross to the other side of the street just so as not to have close proximity with them. In fact, even the scribes would have said there's a, a particular distance that you had to keep from them as if what their sin was going to, you know, latch onto you somehow. But th- But that's sort of how they were viewed in this society. And then we think of the sinners, those people who were obviously immoral people. Uh, They either worked in in sinful occupations, prostitution or gambling, or or, or it was just apparent, just the way you looked at them, the way they carried themselves. Again, it's, it's important to point out here that Jesus is not saying to the tax collectors and the sinners, stay where you are, you cannot help but sin. No, what is absolutely amazing to me as I've gone through this is that they are the ones who, who are drawn to Jesus' teaching, especially what it means to be a disciple. If there was a time to leave Jesus from his teaching, I would have thought it was all the teachings on what it looked like to be a disciple, a true follower of his. It's no easy task. But I've seen people on social media who will say things like, I want to spend more time with sinners and less time with Pharisees. And based on that person who's posting this, based on that person's lifestyle, excuse me, I should have had dad fill in for me, I think. (laughs) Uh, but based on this person who, who's posting on social media, based on their lifestyle, I, you can sort of surmise that it means spending time with sinners in their sin, but there's no, there's no outreach, there's no call to repentance, there's no call to hear the good news, there's no call to, to hear the words of Christ. There's no call to repentance at all. And, and, and so then Jesus becomes this one who, this symbol of, of standing for the sin. He's just okay with it. It's almost a universalism at this point. He, he's there to make me feel good about what I struggle with or what I, what I can't get over, or what, I, you know, what society may look poorly on like when a personality would say that Jesus would have baked the cake for a homosexual wedding when all of that went down in Colorado a number of years ago. The problem with that is that that you imply that Jesus would celebrate a relationship that he detests. A, A homosexual relationship cannot be redeemed. The people, the individuals, of course can be redeemed, of course. But same-sex marriage runs totally counter to God's design for his creation. It runs totally counter to his design for what marriage is supposed to be. I do not see how Jesus would have supported that in any capacity. But in the same breath, we must point out that he came to earth willingly to die so that all who put their faith and trust in him, no matter our sins, whether it is same-sex attraction, whether it is greed or lust or self-worship, idolatry of any kind can be forgiven and repented of and turned away from, and that a new identity can be built on Christ. The one thing that Jesus cannot forgive is an unrepentant heart, which is why he's telling these parables to everyone. He wants them to to know and to see and to understand the character of God. And he wants them to see themselves in these story pictures that he's telling. And so after teaching on the lost sheep, Jesus continues to make his point on what brings rejoicing in heaven. And he tells another parable about a woman who has lost a coin. Now, I think it's safe to say that this is not like losing a coin in the couch cushions. Uh, The coin would typically have been worn in a, a headdress. I'm sure you will have seen this uh, depicted in any sort of Persian or Middle Eastern uh, culture. Um, <clears throat> it would have been likely the, her dowry for her wedding. Uh, wealthy women would have had probably more expensive coins, and uh, poorer women, as I assume this woman in the parable was, would have had cheaper coins. Each coin, uh, historians uh, surmise that it's probably about, they're worth about one day's Wage. So she has 10 days' wages of income on this headdress. But in a bartering system like theirs, uh, where they do not live sort of based on their earned income, this would have still had a great value to her. It, it was of great value to this woman. Those coins could have been used uh, in the case of some sort of family emergency, some sort of dire strait, dire need, uh, or... Or possibly the coins could have represented her commitment to her fiancé or her, uh, her husband. Whatever it is, because everyone has a different opinion on what it is, the point of it is that the loss of the coin was of great concern to her. I remember after my third date with Lindsay, it was New Year's Eve, and I'm very glad that she's not here to hear this. Uh, we, we went to a New Year's Eve party with some of my friends, and um, <clears throat> we rang in the New Year, and then afterwards, uh, that, later that evening, Lindsay drove back up to Marietta where she was living. And I woke up on New Year's Day, and I started getting ready, and I was about to drive somewhere, and I couldn't find my wallet. And uh, I-, I searched high and low for this thing. I looked everywhere. I checked pants pockets, coat pockets, pants I hadn't worn in months. Uh, I asked my friends who had hosted the party, I said, can you search everywhere I was standing and sitting? And I couldn't even drive over there to, to, to check myself. And then one of, uh, one of them suggested, how well do we actually know Lindsay? Uh, <coughs> LAUGHTER and then that thought actually entered in my mind, how well do we know her? It's only the third date. Um, and so, as those thoughts were starting to creep in my mind and my wheels are spinning, because you'll think anything at that point, right? So, I texted her and I said, oh, have you seen my wallet? Uh, it looked like this. And she said, I hadn't seen it. I thought, right. Um <clears throat> But in all honesty, losing something like that, losing a wallet, is pretty miserable, right? I mean, I I think a lot of us have felt something similar to that because then you start thinking okay, well, great, I can't drive anywhere because if I get pulled over and I don't have my license, I gotta pay another additional fee for this, and I get into all kinds of headache and trouble, and so I have to order a new license, I probably have to take a new picture, fantastic, Um, I I, I have to go and I have to cancel all my credit cards, then I have to wait for the new ones to be sent out to me, and then if I've memorized the credit card number, well, tough, you got to memorize a new one. I have far too many numbers on there. Uh, and, then, and then I happened to have, and I can't remember why. I've tried desperately to remember why, but I had a lot of cash on me for some reason. Maybe a roommate had paid me in cash for rent or something. And, and so that was extremely disconcerting because I thought, oh, no, I had all that cash in my wallet. And, and You know, when cash is gone, it's gone. Well, needless to say, there was not one square inch of my house or my car or, or neighbor's houses or anything. I had not been searched. We've all been there. Well, I finally found it in this really obscure space on top of a tie rack. And, and I remembered thinking that night, uh, because there was a lot of cash in it, I wanted to put it in a, a place that no one would find it. Huh. <laughs> Brilliant. And if you can't gather, I didn't live in a really great part of town, so that's why I was hiding it. It was, it was a rough area. So I thought, oh, you know, if someone breaks in and they do all these sorts of things, they won't find my, my wallet with the cash. I thought that was a safe place. And I remembered thinking that night, don't forget you're putting your wallet here. Have you ever done that? Don't forget. Try and make a mental note. And then obviously spent the whole next day forgetting. And of course I forgot. But this woman was not as careless as I was. And so what does she do? Well, so because the architecture of, of the home uh, in those days was less about light and bright and airy and letting in natural light, which is all the rage these days, right? So so that we can't lose our coins that may happen to go missing. That's a joke. Um, but But because you know, often the climate in the Middle East is so hot. uh, And then you also, you you want your house to be dark and you want it to be cool. Uh, But then you also have modern windows weren't invented for some time. And so this house was very dark. And the floor would have been made out of uh, compressed earth. And sometimes it would have had reeds laid over the top. And so you have a dirty floor... In a really extremely poorly lit space. And it would have been quite a task to find this particularly small coin. Uh, It is truly a needle in a haystack at this case. But because the coin is of great value and importance to the woman, she is willing to do what it takes to seek and find this lost coin. So what does she do? She lights a lamp, and she sweeps the house, and she seeks diligently until she finds it. You know, these parables are so multifaceted, and I, I, I love it. I love reading. I think I've told you this before, but I had a roommate who used to say, I get so confused when I read the words of Jesus. You know, Paul, I can kind of figure him out. He's got some logical stuff that I can follow. But when I I read Jesus, it's like, what? What are you talking about? Why would you use that example? Or why would you tell that story? How are you making those connections? But my thing is, I find his, it's just so deep and so rich and so multifaceted. You know, this story, you think, first... Jesus kind of puts you in the position of the person who has lost something of value, does he not? When you read these parables, you're picturing yourself as the shepherd who has lost a sheep. You're picturing yourself as the lady who has lost this coin. And then, as we'll look at in the coming weeks, you picture yourself as the father who has lost a son. Or even the son who has lost himself, or the older brother, whatever it is. You, you picture yourself in all of these parable situations. And you think, yes, I too would have gone out and probably searched for this lost sheep as best I could. I too would have searched the house to find this coin if it was of great value to me. And I too would have absolutely rejoiced when that lost item was found, which is ironic because the Pharisees and the scribes are probably thinking the exact same thing. And yet they grumble and they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It's because they cannot see the value of certain people. A value that God sees and pursues. These people, the tax collectors and sinners, don't even see value in themselves, Think of the tax collector from Luke chapter 18, standing far off in the the temple and beating his chest. He doesn't see value in himself. He he recognizes his inability. Or think about the Samaritan woman going to collect water at noontime when no one in the Middle East goes to collect water because it's the hottest part of the day. But she goes because she doesn't want to be embarrassed. She doesn't want to be seen in front of that whole community who knows exactly who she is. She's a sinner. And they know that. They recognize that. So she has to live this secluded life. It's no wonder that the tax collectors and the sinners were desperate to hear what Jesus was saying. But Jesus is also showing us the character of God. And it is not that God has lost us in the sense that he has misplaced us like the lost coin or that he's forgotten us like I did with my wallet, but but like the sheep that wanders away, right? Because Isaiah tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to their own ways. And ever since the beginning in the garden, there has been a pursuing, Adam, where are you? And from that point on, God has pursued the lost. That is his character. He is a seeking God. And Jesus is reminding the people and the scribes and the Pharisees of this truth. The shepherd and the woman pursue until they find what was lost. But what qualifies for foundness in our application? Because what can be overlooked in these parables, and sadly what the central point of the parables happens to be, is the celebration of the foundness of the lost items. It's not necessarily the nature of how the items were lost, but it's the emphasis he's putting on is on the rejoicing that takes place when the lost thing is found. And it's contingent on the repentance of the lost person in Jesus' explanation. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. If you have nothing to repent of, or you think that you have nothing to repent of, then as we said last week, You are actually lost and you do not realize it. And God is making it clear to you just as Jesus is making it abundantly clear to the Pharisees here. But they refuse to see it. Meanwhile, you have the tax collectors and the sinners who are already beaten down by society and they're seeing their lostness. They don't have to be told they're lost. I think they know And they are recognizing that God has found them. And there is rejoicing in heaven. And that brings great joy. Knowing that you're being found is bringing joy to God himself. Wouldn't that bring you joy? You see, it is, it is God in Christ who is the shepherd that rescues the lost sheep. It is God in Christ who, who is this woman sweeping around in the dust and the debris, the dirt and the dust and the filth of all the broken and wicked world to find his lost ones, ones that belong to him, ones that he loves, not because of what they have done which of course the tax collectors and the, fa- and, the, uh, and the sinners would have understood, but because it was His good pleasure to seek and save these ones. These ones who repent and confess their need for a Savior. And the cost of this foundness, it cost Christ His life. Which is shocking in here in this story? The one who is going to make the way possible for sinners to come to God, the one who is going to lay down his uh, lay his life down to make the tax collectors and the sinners to be made right, is the very one who's telling the Pharisees that God rejoices over lost people being found. He's the very one who's telling them that these people have great value to God. And God searches for them, and he saves them. That is who God is. That is who he is. That's his nature. That's his person. That's his character. And whatever else you are telling yourselves, and whatever else these Pharisees are telling themselves and believing about who God is and what he thinks is false, I'm telling you the reality says Jesus. Well, what's our application here? And I've wrestled with this uh, a lot of the week because, I mean, that's simply the application, right? I mean, it's, it's, the, it's that there are those who are lost and Christ pursues and they are found. But I think it's helpful to take it a, a step further in understanding what it means to be a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, someone who's submitting ourselves to Christ. In fact, I had a a phone conversation with a man who was linked with the KKK in the 60s and was, um, was arrested for attempting to blow up a Jewish businessman in Meridian, Mississippi. And he had been shot like 27 times. And this man thought he was a Christian all during this time, but he was always into the the white supremacist uh, theology that was being given to him. So he's reading all these verses, but they're completely out of context, not helpful. And then he goes to prison, and then he escapes from prison, and then gets recaptured. The two men that escape with him are killed. I mean, this is the most unbelievable. I mean, John Grisham has written books based on this guy's life. I kid you not. I happened to have a conversation with him the the other day, he became a Christian after his re-arrest. And to the point where, I mean, J. Edgar Hoover wanted to make a point of this guy's life. We are done with KKK. We are done with white supremacy. We're going to make a point out of this guy because we've got him. And this guy then becomes a Christian. And so they all say, well, he's faking it. He just wants to get an early release. So the, the FBI agent who was in charge of, his, uh, of finding him when he had escaped... He goes in, he's sent in by Hoover to meet with him. And this guy, his wife, the agent, the FBI agent, his wife had been praying that Thomas, the prisoner, would find Christ, and he did. And so this man, this FBI agent, comes to meet with him, and he says, I walk into the room, and he's a completely different person. He's unrecognizable, and he recognizes immediately something's different about this guy. And then the prisoner leads the FBI agent to Christ, <laughs> the, the former white supremacist. And it was the wife's prayer that, that served so well in, 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 in his salvation that ended up bringing her husband to Christ. I mean, it's, it's, it's baffling. And so anyway, I'm talking to this man on the phone this week, and I asked him, I said, you, you could have, you know, Billy Graham wanted to take your story and make a movie out of it. He didn't want to do that. He didn't want the fame and the publicity. The sermon's now going to be longer. That's why I've added this story. Um, <laughs> but he said, no, what I want to invest in is discipleship. I want to invest in people. And, and, and so he's done this sort of small-scale stuff. I mean, he's worked with C.S. Lewis Institute and Colson Center and some of these bigger organizations. But he himself has invested in discipleship. And one of the things we talked about this past week was that we, we misunderstand discipleship. I think we think it's like this add-on optional course for Christians. Well, I think things are going well, or I have some free time, maybe I'll pursue discipleship. He said that is a horrible view of something. Discipleship is something for all Christians in all phases, at all walks of life, all And no matter what, we're all disciples. We're all on a path, and we are growing, and we're learning, and we're being discipled, hopefully, by somebody. And so it's an extremely important thing. And so with that long introduction to this one concluding point, you know, if it is the character of our God to seek and save the lost, and if we are Christ's disciples, then we too should be seekers of lost people that we in our hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is within you, and yet doing this with gentleness and respect, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us. And all of that starts with a repentant heart and rejoicing in heaven. And then going out and doing the will of the master. Another application is that it's a call to love the lost and not require anything of them except to come and see that Christ is good. Bring all your baggage, bring all your burdens. He is a gracious God. And then finally, as we said, it's the the main point of the text. Those are supporting uh, applications, but the main point Excuse me, is a reminder of the character of our God. He is good. He is patient. He will find the lost ones. He pursues. Don't make unbiblical assumptions about Him based on anything outside of His Word. Let me conclude with just a a simple story. Excuse me, we need the mute button that dad uses when he blows his nose. The late Bible teacher, Harry Ironside, told of a new convert who gave his testimony at a church service. With a smile on this man's face and joy in his heart, the man related how he had been delivered from a life of sin. He gave the Lord all the glory, saying nothing or anything about what he had done. Okay, I get the point. I'm I'm, I'm wrapping up. But the person in charge of this church uh, meeting and this testimony sharing was a, a, a legalistic man. Golly, we're really ready to go, aren't we? And this legalistic man could not understand the fact that salvation is totally by God's grace, apart from human merit and human works. And so he responded to the young man's comments about him Uh, uh, that, that God did everything by saying you seem to indicate that God did everything when he saved you. Didn't you do your part before God did his? And the new Christian jumped to his feet and said, oh, yes, I did. For more than 30 years, I ran away from God as fast as my sins could carry me. That was my part. But God took out after me and ran me down, and that was his part." And Ironside comments, it was well put, and tells a story that every redeemed sinner understands. Let's pray. Father, it can be easy to get caught up in these things, and we, we, we can forget that it is by grace alone that we've been saved. But then there's another side of that ditch which says that uh, it's grace alone and then I don't have to do anything after. But that's not how you operate. You, you have saved us by grace, but then you have saved us unto good works. And you have opened our eyes to see and you've given us mouths to speak and ears to listen. And you have put us in a culture that is lost and dying And you've put us in neighborhoods with people with questions and hurts and pains. And as much as we do not feel qualified to speak into that, you have said, no, my child, you are qualified. And so, Father, if we call ourselves your disciples, help us to have trust and confidence in that help us to have a hunger and a desire for your word that is so deep that we can't help but speak of the salvation that's been given that we can't help but speak of the grace that was given to us that it wasn't our works but that it was by your efforts your seeking for we were all that coin at one point that you came after and you found in the darkness in the dirt and that heaven rejoiced at that foundness. And so, Father, help us to see that and rejoice in your rejoicing and rejoice in the work that you are doing in the taking out of the gospel, not just to the ends of the earth, but even across the street, to the neighbor who we think is too far gone, to the person who seems antagonistic towards us. Help us to see people for the value that they carry, just as you do. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. For we pray all this in Christ's name.